The truth is, in order to heal, we need to tell our stories and have them witnessed. The story itself becomes a vessel that holds us up, that sustains, that allows us to order our jumbled experiences into meaning. As I told my stories of fear, awakening, struggle, and transformation, and had them received, heard, and validated by other women, I found healing. I also needed to hear other women's stories in order to see and embrace my own. Sometimes another woman's story becomes a mirror that shows me a self that I haven't seen before. When I listen to her tell it, her experience quickens and clarifies my own. Her questions rouse mine. Her conflicts illumine my conflicts. Her resolutions call forth my hope. Her strengths summon my strengths. And all of this can happen even when our stories and our lives are very different. That quote is by Sue Monk Kidd, the brilliant author of The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. And that quote was sent to me in an email this week by my good friend, Jamie Flares. Jamie was on this podcast on episode five. Jamie also accompanied me this weekend to the Vagina Monologues and also to my TEDx. Jamie is a champion of women's stories, and I have so much gratitude for all of the wraparound support that our relationship affords both of us. I love that quote, and I, I deeply appreciate it and share it here because, man, oh man, it's the lesson of the week. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing what arises as you listen to this episode. Hello and welcome to the Sacred Remembering Podcast, the place for modern women who are waking up to the truth of who they are, with me as your host, Sarah Poet. Now, if the word sacred is throwing you a little bit, that's okay. Have you had that moment as a modern woman where you went, wait, I left something of myself back there along the way? Well, if so, then you're already on a path of sacred remembering and you're actually in the right place. We know that modern women are rising, but we don't do it by fighting. We do it by remembering who we are and standing in that truth. And here in this space, we remember together through stories and tools and curiosity And in doing so, we bring forward the place of women in our modern world. Now let's begin. Hello, listeners. Thanks for coming back for another episode of the Sacred Remembering Podcast. This one is going to be just me telling you a story about some recent experiences that I had on two stages, TEDx and the vagina monologues. And this is coming pretty impromptu. I told you when I recorded the first episode that I would come back and record some additional solo episodes. Um, And the interviews have been so, so rich. And I haven't really felt the need to uh, put any of my own solo voice in there. And um, today I don't feel the need so much as I feel the inspiration and almost the um, divine guidance, like 
the soul nudge, so to speak. So I, I want to talk about using our voices and I want to talk about the vulnerability that comes with using voice. I want to talk about platform. I want to talk about conformity. I want to talk about truth. Um, all of these really gritty topics. This podcast episode will dive deep. I'm going to share personal truths. Uh, there might be some, some trigger warnings and I'll tell you when I'm getting close to that. And yeah, it's, I think an act of, um, courage potentially that I'm recording this episode now, but I've been sitting with this notion of courage today. So last night, as I record this last night was the first of two performances of the vagina monologues, where um, I read an original monologue that I wrote, I'll talk more about that. And um, I, I consistently hear people tell me that I'm very courageous for how I use my voice. And I want to be clear that, you know, it's not just about courage for me. It's like a matter of having to do it. <laughs> like I really, I really have to um, continue to show up in my truth. And that is how I know when my life is on track. And uh, my voice, my exploration of my voice, my experience of being able to use my voice in this lifetime and exercise my truth in this lifetime has at times and for most of my life been very, very challenged. And so when people, you know, continue to say to me now, like, well, you're a badass or you have a lot of courage. I really want to say like, it isn't, it has not always been this way. I do not necessarily feel like a courageous badass when I'm stepping up to the microphone. Um, and Yet I do it because platform is privilege, which I'm also going to talk about in this episode. So taking a deep breath, <sighs> I really believe that every invitation is divine. I'm a projector in the human design and I learned that last year and I learned that I'm to pay attention to invitation. And so the invitation for these two speaking events that I've done, it was about six months apart. Um, I, I did a TEDx in September of 2019 and the vagina monologues. It's, um, it's actually 2.22 today at 2 p.m. as I record this, fun fact. And so, you know, about six months apart. And the invitation for both of these speaking events came from the same person. So there's uh, divinity there as well. My friend Heidi, she's going to be on the podcast as a guest around Mother's Day talking about raising sons. So I'm really excited about that. My my friend Heidi gave me both of these invitations and um, said, you know, when TEDx came out, Heidi said, hey, TEDx applications are open. I really want to hear you tell your story on stage. And I know that that's a part of what I am supposed to do. I'm supposed to use my voice in the world. It's, it's a part of my soul's calling, my soul contract. And, and so I was like, shoot, I have to do it. And <laughs> the the TEDx process is like really huge and formal. And right before, okay, so that was May of 2019 when TEDx opened the applications. 
And that was what Heidi was telling me um, to pay attention to and to apply to. And I had gone through probably the the lowest point in the dark night of the soul that I've talked about on this podcast that that I went through in 2019. I talk about that because it's important that we own you know the the lows as well as the highs. Um, I had really gone through that low that the the lowest of the low probably like. March, April, late March, very early April. And so I was coming back up and out of that when Heidi gave me that invitation. And I thought, shit, I'm going to have to do this. And so I shit you not, I knew that I was going to be on that TEDx stage from the moment Heidi said that. And it was just like a really deep knowing and I went through the application process. You know, I didn't know anybody on the inside of that application process. It was just a soul knowing that every step of the way I, I was going to have to do it. Um, I think it was like the universe's way of saying, Sarah, get your ass back up. Like you're not, you're not done here. So in that process, you know, a couple of things were happening. I was, I was getting myself back up. I was picking myself back up. Also professionally, I was starting this arm of embodied breath of my practice that was called sacred remembering. And I was really allowing myself to use the word sacred, even though part of my clientele or what I hope to do is really reach women who are still uh, relatively mainstream, like the cho- the choice to use the word sacred was a conscious one because I want us to recognize that women are sacred. Like we are blessed, we are sacred um, just by being <laughs> born on this planet. And for a long time, women have, um, you know, thought that we were less than that or looking for our worth or validation, our, our <laughs> near like... <laughs> worth of our existence, you know, looking for that on the outside of ourselves. And so we are inherently sacred and we are remembering that. And that's what this podcast is about. The podcast came later that came in about October after the TEDx. But so I was starting this, um, I was starting to own the word sacred and, and sacred remembering came to me sort of as a you know, divine instruction and things like that. So I chose to use the word sacred in my TEDx. And as I was writing the TEDx, I knew that it was about my story, but it was also about this archetypal story that I have lived. And as a modern woman, I was fed, you know, a a story that I had to succeed in a certain way. Um, I don't blame anyone for this because it's like what my mother knew. It's what her mother knew. You know, it's what we do until we have an idea and a consciousness about what's going on. And so when my family was saying, you know, you can't raise your daughter when you're, when you're pregnant at 18, you can't raise your daughter because you have to go make something of yourself. They weren't saying that because they were assholes. They were saying that because they, that was the recipe that they had. That was the recipe that they were shown and that they believed in. And even though that wasn't necessarily very fulfilling for them, that was still the recipe. So it was one I was given, I followed it and it didn't work. And I ended up getting sick at 32. And this is the story that I tell 
in the TEDx. But the TEDx is about the reclamation of the feminine and masculine, and I say the sacred feminine and sacred masculine archetypes within each person. And I really wanted to, you know, highlight that this is for like work relationships. This is for love relationships. This is if we're in each person, it's the, it's the work of our time. And it's actually the basis of like everything we do. So the, the process of the preparation of the TEDx was very, very formal, but I was still actually ridden with self-doubt because I was coming out of this dark night of the soul. Everything that had prompted that was very shaking to my foundation. And I was questioning myself. I constantly rewrote the TEDx. I think I rewrote it like every time we had a rehearsal, every two weeks, I would have a new talk. (laughs) I, I honestly would. And then finally it came together as we got closer. And that's very common for me. I can start something ahead of time, but it's pretty much going to be right before it happens that it comes together. And so that's what happened. And come late August, you know, early September, I had the script written out by slide. I had it taped on the walls in my house in various rooms. And so that's how I memorized it. I went from slide to slide in my house, um, memorizing it. And, you know, it was my story, but I was crafting it for that audience. I was crafting it according to who I thought might see it, you know, who watches a TEDx talk. It's, it's not, it's not an esoteric thing. They definitely have rules against that. Everything needs to be seated in um, science. And so I really toned down my message. Like I, I really toned down anything esoteric in there, but the choice of the word sacred and to talk about the archetypes was a conscious one. And then what ended up happening was that TEDx wouldn't publish it. (laughs) They, um, stalled I'll say, and I never had any contact with Ted, um, I just had the contact with the Asheville team. So that's an independent event. It's a TEDx event. And so TED itself took six months to publish my talk. It just came out like a week prior to me recording this podcast. So in that process of waiting for it to come out, after I had gone through this whole preparation process, and it really helped me to heal from that dark night of the soul. And like, it was like my comeback, right? And and then some. And once I had done it, it felt so good to be done with it. My body immediately got sick. I took like two weeks to recover. I mean, it was such a big leap energetically to hold that space. And then in the process of it being, you know, quieted or essentially rejected by Ted in that process of evaluation, you know, I had a lot of reactions that I had that were really familiar to me from throughout my life. Like, oh, my message is rejected. Oh, someone else is judging what I've said here. Um, Oh, even though I tried to play by the rules and fit within their content guidelines, now they're saying that I'm not within their content guidelines and they don't know if I'm going to publish my talk. And so I was able to see this reflection of my own shadow, quite honestly, of really hoping for 
acceptance um, from from the man, right? Like from Ted, from this uh, far off organization that I never had any personal contact with. And so to be evaluated for my voice and my message by people in an office somewhere that don't know me, that don't know my character. And then for that team of people, I mean, it could have been one person, it could have been 10, like I have no idea, for them to judge my talk as outside of their content guidelines anyway, even after I'd taken all of those uh, precautions was really discouraging. And so when it came out, it ended up coming out with a flag from TEDx saying that um, it's a new age, probably because I use the word sacred. And I don't have any further explanation for that. But like, here we are, that, that choice point that I made to use the word sacred and to really start having this conversation, that I think is really a lot of what hung my talk up with, with TEDx. And they ended up, I'm sorry, with TED itself. And they ended up calling it New Age. And so, you know, I could say a lot right here about TED. Um, I'm... I, I won't say a lot, but I'm relatively disappointed with the organization, quite honestly. Um, you know, if we are talking about ideas worth exploring, um, I think the conversation about the archetypal feminine and masculine within each person, it is the healing revolution on the planet. Like it, it is the potential healing for, you know, our own lack of wholeness, um, the, the environmental crisis, racism, sexism, like it, it's a disease of separation that we have on the planet. And for me and for my soul and my soul's message, it really comes down to this archetypal feminine and masculine. And that did not compute in, in the minds of whoever was in that office evaluating my talk. And so they just shot it down. Like they just put it in a new age box. Right. So here I was, um, really having gone through like all of that. And, and as a human, I was like, well, fuck that, you know, same old story, right? Like same old, not really actually being accepted for my voice or like being evaluated um, for my voice. And so a lot of lessons learned. I'm grateful that the talk is out and um, maybe one day they'll take off that flag, but I don't have the energy to fight that right now. So so I'm going through that process. And then a week later, I'm supposed to get on the vagina monologues stage. And when I had gone to the original read through, uh, having no theater experience whatsoever, by the way, like nothing. I mean, I'm so like serious and, and <laughs> I don't know, deadpan. Is that, is that what I mean to say? Um, that it really, like anything theatrical for me has always been relatively difficult. I know that I should do improv, but I haven't gotten around to that yet. So, so I go to the rehearsal having no, uh, theater experience and I read through one of the pieces and it was slightly uncomfortable and I did it anyway. And the woman who runs the vagina monologues was like, well, that says something about you. And she said, you know, this year we're looking for some original pieces. And I was like, I'll do that. You know, it, <laughs> in a way that my soul sort of gets me into these situations um, where I was like, I want to talk about the church being up inside my vagina. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, yeah, like said this big yes. And um, I want to speak for just a minute about what the Vagina Monologues is, in case you don't know. Um, it was created by a woman by the name of Eve Ensler. And seriously, if I could invite five women to dinner, Eve would be one of them. Um, I, like, I pause here in reverence as the chills run through my body. Eve Ensler had a childhood where she experienced abuse from her father and her mother wouldn't acknowledge it. Um, she was, you know, she grew up like this. She does have, she has a, an extensive theater background and she started interviewing women about their vagina <laughs> per the story of the vagina monologues. And um, she collected these stories and created this show. And so when you go see the vagina monologues anywhere, and it always happens around Valentine's day. So they call it V day. And it is an event that helps to, um, draw attention to violence against women and it all of the events sponsor um, local you know women's shelters and raise awareness about how to stop violence against women and anyone's invited to the event you know it's ticketed it's a fundraiser and wherever you go you'll hear the same monologues and it's over 20 years old at this point so I remember hearing it in college and I hadn't heard it again, but I had followed Eve Ensler because she had done this interview with Krista Tippett. Again, I have chills. Krista Tippett of On Being um, probably five or six years ago now. And um, Eve Ensler is also a cancer survivor. Um, and she got cancer, I believe, in her uterus, um, you know, which is relatively unsurprising as far as like the extensive abuse history goes, right? Like where we have our traumas, we sometimes have these, um, these things show up, these diseases show up um, when the trauma gets trapped, right? Whew. So, um, so that interview with Krista Tippett, I really recommend you listening to that as well. And when I heard that interview, it was at a turning point in my life. I think I had just gone through divorce and I was really in an embodiment journey. And Eve was talking about her journey with cancer and, and living in the body. And then she also wrote a memoir. Um, and I can't remember the name of that right now, but I've, I've read that memoir. And yeah, so, so her experience with abuse and being in the body, she's really just someone that I look up to very, very much. And her voice, like she is a woman who has used her voice. Uh, so when Trump was elected, Eve Ensler wrote a letter, and I think it was called um, Letter to White Women Who Support Trump. It was during the Kavanaugh. Uh, hearing actually it was after Trump's election and it was so powerful and and the way she worded that was really instrumental on my journey because I had this history with abuse in my family that no one talked about and by the time 
the Kavanaugh things were, were going on. Um, and I read this, I thought, oh my gosh, she's naming how I feel about my mother. And I ended up sending this letter to my mother and saying, you know, this is how I felt. This is how I felt. Like, why do you support, um, you know, essentially my perpetrator? And now I'm going into, like, so here's the trigger warning. And, and I also want to name that while I begin to talk about my own life and what I spoke about on the vagina monologue stage, I also um, want to name that there's fear inside of me present right now. Um, up until this experience with the vagina monologues, I have never publicly named my abuse and have been made my had been made my whole life. I felt crazy. I just felt I felt as if I knew a thing, but no one would acknowledge the thing. And in my awakening process and in my adult life, and and my ex husband actually was very. Um, supportive in that he acknowledged what I knew from the experience in my body. I began to learn as time went on that I could trust that to be real. So my body remembered abuse that my brain could not remember. And my own remembrance of it actually began as a teenager And I went to my mother at that time and told her that I had had this memory and this um, feeling that my father had been a perpetrator and she told me not to be silly. And one of the reasons that I have not shared this story is because my mother, like, I don't, I don't want to hurt her. I I don't want to hurt anyone. And yet to be a woman who has done all of these things for, you know, like I climbed the career ladder. I did what I was supposed to do. I, I reclaimed, you know, I've done the embodiment work of like, I've walked the path and walked the path and walked the path. And then I think the reason that I'm actually speaking this today is because something about being on the stage last night and actually speaking these things um, allowed it to be real in a way that I just, that I just want to share. Um, because I know that we are walking around with these silent truths, you know, like I have this women's truth, women's voice component of what I do in the world. And yet I've never told this story. Well, why didn't I tell this story? Well, I was still working it out with my family. I was still looking to see where it was going to land with my family as I started to really bring some of these things up over the last two years. Um, It hasn't landed well. You know, it landed in a lot more separation and isolation and uh, not, not any more support than I ever had in owning my truth. And so I was still in this process and, and now it's perfect timing, you know, now like it, it, it just, it just is whatever. So to go back to what I was saying before, you know, I I always had this memory in my body 
Uh, I had fear in my body that was inexplicable. I had sexual trauma. I had um, markers of trauma. Now, before I knew about trauma, I didn't even know that I had markers of trauma. I just, it was me. So if you're listening and you're like, well, my body gets scared. Here's what I want to encourage. The story doesn't matter as much as it matters that you listen to your body. So when I first thought, I want to uncover what happened to me, this was before my son's birth. So this was probably 13 years ago. And I was in Asheville and I went to a healer that I still see today. And I said, find it, find it. And she kind of laughed and she was like, the truth will be uncovered to you at the rate at which the truth will be uncovered to you. And the rate at which your body allows it, because the the issues are in the tissues, if you've ever heard that. So the trauma actually gets stuck in the tissue of the body and in the body itself. And the brain is actually designed to protect us from remembering the bad stuff. Okay. And so if your body has a fear of being in certain social situations or a fear of being confined. Um, if you react in intimate situations in certain ways, like these are things that you can listen to and honor without having the story to back it up. Like the story does not validate what you feel. You honoring your body validates what you feel. I really, really, really want to share that. I didn't let myself know that for a long time. And so I maintained a relationship with my family, but the relationship with my family required me to not own parts of myself, to not acknowledge all parts of myself. And I never chose to talk about this with my father because it's so, um, I don't need to go into all that, but you know, he still had hooks in me, manipulative hooks in me, relational hooks in me. Um, there's fear in my body as I start to say this out loud right now. Um, like for me to say this on my podcast is a big ass deal, y'all. Like I, in this moment, I'm, there's still a voice in my head going, what the fuck are you doing? Because, (laughs) because it's scary, right? Okay. So at this point in the recording, uh, Zoom gets paused. I don't realize it. I'm talking and talking and talking. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't have more time today. I have to go back for a second uh, performance of the vagina monologues. And I'm just going to have to finish this later. So the second half of this podcast episode is being recorded four days later. So on Friday and Saturday, I performed the original monologue for the vagina monologues, and this is being recorded on Thursday. So there were a few more days for integration and reflection, but I'll continue from here. Okay, so the last thing I said was that I hadn't really shared this because it's scary. It's scary to talk about the truth when you don't know how that truth being out in the world will actually affect your world. And yeah, so my close friends knew the story uh, for sure. I was doing all of this trauma work for years on this. Uh, I'm writing a memoir. This will be in there because I can't tell the story 
of my relationship with my body without talking about this. Um, but I've never written about it on a blog. I've never written about it on a Facebook post. I've alluded to it, I think, in Facebook land. Um, I've never really talked about it outright um, in public, even though I'm a big old truth teller. So I was really living this experience in this past week or in the process of the vagina monologues where I was really owning a truth and, and walking my talk again, because I have been a fighter for the right of women to have our truths, to know our truths, to speak our truths. And, you know, <laughs> I often say, I believe that every woman has a truth that she's not telling. And I know that this is true because I have had truths that I'm not telling. And, and I also talk about how we can have the truth and our truths without necessarily speaking them because there's not always like a time and a place for them. I mean, if I were to have written about this on my blog or something like that, I mean, it may have just been for the wrong reasons. And so it, it so happened that as the vagina monologues was coming forward and I found myself in this soul. Yes. At the, um, at the tryouts that day when where I just sort of was like, sure, I'll tell this story about the church and the father and the God. And then when I sat down to start writing it like two weeks before the rehearsal or two weeks before the actual event, two days before the rehearsal, two weeks out, um, it became that I really needed to, speak the violation that was done to me without going into my father's story because it's my father's story. Um, it was done to me almost in the name of God. And I just, I just felt a lot of fear in saying that because I know that if my father heard me say that there would be a deep outrage, like, um, so my father's relationship with God saved his life. And there was, you know, questionable things done to me, some of which I remember outright, some of which I recovered in uh, trauma therapies, some of which my body remembers, but I don't have a story for. But I, I believe myself at this point, I believe myself. And um, yet God was like wrapped up into this somehow. So God always belonged to my father. We had to go to church every Sunday. Um, I heard things like, you know, woman is man's dominion. Eve was the sinner. <laughs> Blame the woman. You know, I'm just sort of being um, very generalized about this right now. But the message that came to me was that uh, man owns woman. Woman should listen to man. Father has authority over daughter. And in a lot of ways, my young being, my soul was like never buying this. And then, um, you know, when I explored this early sexuality and then ended up getting pregnant, uh, there was like such a deep shame that it was almost like, like this authority won for a while or something like that. 
But I wanted to tell the story on the stage because the relationship that was severed with God, I think is really common for women. So I'm going to talk about this for a minute. So when we have a wound that is related to the masculine or to God or religion, you know, be it like your father hurt you or an uncle or a man hurt you or the church hurt you or, you know, all of this oppression through the patriarchy that has been um, put over women or done to women is often through a masculine lens because in the patriarchy, man had power. So what happens in that process in the female psyche is that we are actually severed from our relationship with the divine masculine, which is heartbreaking, which we search for um, when we're in codependent relationships with men, when we're looking for men to save us or in any way at all. And I know that we are, <laughs> you know, we'd be like, Oh, I don't think a man's going to save us. And that's why I'm really uh, also tough, but like, fuck that. We all, you know, deep down until we heal it really want that. Like we still believe that there's going to be like a, a brilliant man, like on a white stallion that like sweeps in and, um, you know, or, or some such savior. Um, and, and there's this like <laughs> projection that, that we hope that the, that the masculine shows up for us. I'm speaking very generally right now. So feel into what components of your story this does resonate with. And, and if it doesn't, just, you know, take what works and leave the rest. But it's really common. It's really common that we have a masculine wound. We're hoping for that wound to be healed. And in doing so, we, we look for evidence in man for a man to be safe enough to provide that for us, for a man to be safe enough to prove to us that the original wound or the, the original uh, perpetration um, is okay now, right? So this is the external projection of the internal masculine, what Carl Jung called the animus. And I totally did this <laughs> for a long time. I have to check myself in my current relationship where I start to go into projection. We all do it. So, so the wound with the masculine inside the patriarchy actually separates us from God. It actually separates us from the sacred. And I've, I've talked about this um, in the Sacred Remembering Facebook group this week, but just to say here as well, you can find more information on it in the group. I'm happy to talk to anyone about this further. But often on the path of reclaiming our feminine, because we're, we understand that the feminine has been oppressed, and then we go on a walk as women to remember and reclaim the sacred feminine in us. Maybe this is just another podcast episode at some point. And on that road and that reclamation of the sacred feminine, and I was on that road for like eight years and I was, you know, reading the books and I was um, in the priestess groups and I was, you know, in the 
in the women's circles and having my own women's circles. And then there was a really very, very deep recognition that I had actually been severed from the sacred masculine. So in our path of sacred remembering as women, we all, we ultimately, uh, or likely first reclaim the sacred feminine because we recognize that that's been lost. Now I think it's becoming, it's just starting to become understood that until we reclaim the sacred masculine, then we perpetuate the separation. So there's all this separation between the sexes right now and between genders, but we really need to, to look at like, not only what is the relationship between the masculine and feminine in us, but what is our relationship with this sacred feminine and the sacred masculine? And I'll tell the story right now because stories want to be told today. So, you know, Jesus belonged to my father. Jesus belonged to my father. And when I was growing up and this oppression was in my life and, uh, you know, and I was hearing these messages from the church that women were less than, I rejected Jesus. I rejected um, the whole bit, like Christianity, the whole bit. Now, I am not a Christian today. I do not, um, I, I, I am not talking about like becoming Christian again. I just want to make that clear. That's not in my path. Um, Christ consciousness is different than Christianity, but, um, so on my path of reclaiming the sacred feminine, I resurrected Mary Magdalene next to who I now call master Jesus, the ascended master Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene, it was very important for me in my soul's path um, to resurrect her and to realize that these two were in sacred union. Um, They actually, yeah, we're partners. I'll leave it at that because I'm I'm going off on a side tangent here for a bit and I want to bring it back. So, I spent years um, remembering alongside Mary Magdalene as one of my uh, primary guides, uh, probably the primary guide on my path in the last few years. And on my altar, I have a picture of Master Jesus and Mary Magdalene, like beside each other. I have them both beside each other. And this has been um, central on my path of the feminine and masculine. Now, you do not have to have a relationship with Jesus and Mary Magdalene or any specific ascended masters. I'm saying that this is my path, you know, uh, in in looking at the, the masculine and feminine because this is my soul's path, okay? So I've put them back on the altar, both of them beside each other, the union of the masculine feminine, the union of the Christ consciousness, the, you know, what is possible in sacred union between two individuals? Like how do, how do two humans and bodies find God through union? Like this has been my exploration, uh, my soul's exploration, my soul's inquiry. And, my father actually walked into my house. I let him into my home this past summer and he saw the, um, he saw this, he saw master Jesus next to Mary Magdalene. And, but he focused on Jesus and he said, you have Jesus on your, on your you have Jesus in your house because he had never 
my whole life, I was like, no, I'm not having anything to do with this. And he was pushing this on me, but his version of this. And so, um, in, yeah, in some ways, even though I'm telling this whole story now, I think my father would still be like happy to know that I have a relationship with masterpieces at this point. So, um, so I said to him, I said, well, beside him is Mary Magdalene. And my whole life, I could not, I could not accept him for who he was because the feminine was severed in everything that I had learned. And now that she is beside him, now I understand. Now I can, I like, that is what my soul needed. And he said, Sarah, do not speak such blasphemy. You know, he still considers Mary Magdalene whore as, as um, many do in the Christian tradition, but I'm not talking about that. So, you know, <laughs> so, that is how I have been experiencing this like resurrection of being able to even talk about these things because I really recognized and it wasn't until like 2019 in the summer of 2019 where I really realized that while I had put Mary Magdalene back next to Jesus, I hadn't really developed a relationship again with like who he was as a Christ, a bearer of Christ consciousness and the, um, the representation of the sacred masculine, the sacred masculine that would be an absolute devotion to the feminine. So this has been my path. I say all that to say, um, yeah, that's the information. And, and then this has been going on behind the scenes, right? So the vagina monologues is coming up and I uh, decide that I'm going to tell the story, but I'm also going to make it such that, you know, we're advocating for the return of the sacred masculine and, you know, and it was an advocacy piece about we, the last line that I used was no more violence, domination, or oppression over women in the name of the father, right? So there's this, just the use of the word father is like the mortal father, but then the immortal father. So so it was an advocacy piece around religion and taking out the, all of the reasons why the oppression of women has been, um, considered okay in the name of God. So that's what I stand up and say and do on the vagina monologue stage. <laughs> and the gift of that entire experience was acceptance. So as women who have these truths inside of us, there's, I found in my, throughout my entire life, there was like a fight, you know, especially when your family doesn't believe you or, um, or you lose people because of it. You know, when I told my sisters this, um, about a year ago and I, and I really said like, I'm, I'm claiming this as truth and this happened and I've been keeping it quiet, you know, even though I was like always the black sheep, I said, I'm, I am making this known now. I didn't hear from my sisters again. And 
And that's the level of loss that can come with owning your truth. You know, my, my sisters who have a relationship with these two people, these, these parents and, and just the norm in the family to appear as if everything is okay. You know, I can't, I cannot speak to the experience that my family members are having because I have not heard from them. I don't know. So this is my story. I'm not telling another story for, for anyone else, but the message has been rejection. Like the message from my immediate family has always been rejection. If you own your truth, you'll, you know, there, there's a fear of rejection or a good chance that you will be rejected. And so from the moment I began down this path with the vagina monologues, the woman who organizes and runs it, you know, she, I said, how about I do this piece? She said, sure. Yeah. Thank you. And then I come to the dress rehearsal and, and I said, was that okay? And she's like, yes, thank you. That was so powerful. And then she ends up um, organizing a piece at the end of the vagina monologues, because there's four original monologues and then, uh, and the purpose of the original monologues was like, why I rise. So I was rising to advocate for this. And, and then the final piece was an excerpt from a book that Eve Ensler did called The Apology, where she imagined the words that she would have longed to hear from her father before he passed, but she never heard them. So there was this framed aspect of, um, you know, between my story and this closing excerpt from Eve Ensler, it was quite powerful. And so in this situation, in this um, opportunity on stage, my story was completely welcome and it was completely believed and accepted. And my system didn't recognize this. My body, my brain, it didn't recognize this because to have spoken this truth before led to massive rejection. And so what was happening in my body as I stood up to tell these stories, both on Friday and Saturday night was, was a very traumatized, like, response almost to the fear of speaking it. And so I want to talk about that for a moment. So on Friday night, the first night, we were a little bit further from town. I didn't think I knew anyone in the audience. I ended up knowing someone in the audience, but didn't know that until afterward. And so when I stood up on Friday to speak it, my pelvis was literally shaking, just convulsing, like I knew I wasn't going to fall over because I've done enough public speaking to know that even though I get really, really scared, my body will make it through. So, but, but it was the first time I've ever experienced my pelvis because of the fear of the, of the story that I was telling um, was, was like convulsing. <laughs> and I'll say too that like I have the I have to do a last minute pee before I speak at the microphone. And this is in part a trauma thing. 
And I have, I've had this like for years, forever, you know, I'm open to changing healing at any point, but I've always had to do this. And I didn't, I didn't understand it when I wasn't giving myself the, um, the benefit of the doubt of my own story. And so I need to do a last minute pee, but in the vagina monologues, everyone is on the stage at one time. And you're sitting there as the audience and it's like a two hour show. And I went toward the end and I said to the organizer, I said, listen, I'm going to have to do a last minute pee. I'm going to have to get off the stage, walk out, walk back on before I do this because, because of vagina trauma. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, it's the first time in my life. I can just say why I need this. And so that was absolute freedom. That was absolute acceptance. She's like, sure, let me help you organize this. Let me, you know, like just sit by the door and, and just go ahead and do this. And like, just have the freedom to be exactly who you are. And at, at this point, I pretty much do like, I make no apologies for who I am. I'm like, I have to use the bathroom and I will like, no one's going to tell me when I will and won't do that. Um, I pretty much say what I want to say, you know, I hang out with who I want to hang out with. Like I'm a very empowered, very boundaried woman. Um, and these things are still running through my system. So let me get back to, um, so that was night one. And then night two, we were in Asheville and, um, I woke up that, that day, that Saturday, when I started uh, recording the podcast, I woke up and I was like, I don't want to have to do this again. And so all day I was processing, like, why is that? Why is tonight worse? Why is tonight more nervous? And it was because people that I loved were going to be in the audience. So then I was like, well, that's interesting. If people who love me are going to be there supporting me, why is my system more freaked out? And then I was able to sit with this. I was able to do um, EFT, emotional freedom technique, tapping on this. I was able to like, meditate with this, dance with this. You know, the whole week I've really been integrating because I really realized that as a woman who has been fighting for my voice for a very long time, I was, I was doing, I was using my voice as a fighter and my nervous system, therefore was in fight or flight. A lot of the time, a lot of the time historically that I have been using my voice and saying what was true for me, I've been doing it like a, as like a, a feat of overcoming something. And I think this is so common for women. So that's why I'm saying some of these details and this is getting to be a little bit longer because I'm saying some of these details because these are the things, A, we don't talk about, B, we need to talk about so we know we're not alone, and C, maybe this is happening inside of you and you don't have like even words for it, you know? So, So that's why I'm spelling it out here, not because I need to like I'm not having a therapy session on my podcast or anything like that. I I do that work. I go to therapy. I I have like soul conversations. I, you know, I do all that work and I'm speaking it here specifically because of the power of what happens when we look at these truths. So both nights right before I was to get on up to the microphone, I had this like, 
oh, it's fucking time to tell the story. <laughs> I had this like, here we go. So my body's freaking out beforehand. You know, I have to go to the bathroom a lot. Like I'm super sick. I feel dizzy. Um, I'm in fight or flight. Like I, I think like I'm not going to make it. And then I just keep breathing because I've been here before. I know that I can do this. Um, I, it, and then there was like a, a point of it's time to tell this story. And I stood up to the mic the second night and like right in the first two rows were three women that I love. And then, you know, my beloveds in the audience and, um, another, like my, you know, best friend. And then another really best guy friend are there. And I had this metacognitive experience where I was like watching myself and I was totally aware of my body and the room. And I wasn't nervous anymore. And I claimed the fuck out of my own story. And my friend Andrew was like, it's a lot, it was a lot of applause of the night. I don't know if that's true or not. I think I was also the first person to tell her own story. So, so people were just surprised, but to receive, to receive that and to receive his reflection you know, I said, I said to my partner yesterday, I said, no one in that room questioned my believability. And he looked at me and he was like, duh. <laughs> I was like, no, you don't understand. I have carried this story for nearly 40 years. I could cry right now. You can hear my voice shaking a little bit. I have carried this story for nearly 40 years and it has affected my body. It has affected my being to stay silent. It has affected how I interact with people when I question my own believability because those who are supposed to love me the most question my believability. When I lose people for telling my truth, and in that experience of the complete and total acceptance of the vagina monologues experience from the moment it started to the moment it was finished where people were just saying, thank you for your truth. It was this community experience where I had accepted my truth a long time ago. I have never been in a community situation where not only was I believed, but I was also thanked. And it was the entire event is to end violence against women. And so, you know, men were coming up to me afterwards and saying, thank you. I don't quite know how to take in this experience, but oh my gosh, one man said, I came to this experience of chills right now. I came to this experience because a woman recently called me out as not knowing as not, um, I think being sensitive enough or something like that. I don't know the details, but he came to educate himself and he was saying, just thank you. Like he was just blown away. <laughs> he almost like didn't want to leave the proximity of my, of my being <laughs> afterwards. And I was like, got it, dude. Like, yeah, you just heard a lot. And, um, it's really important to, to know these truths 
if you've never heard the vagina monologues before, I really, really advocate that you go. So to tie this back together, the reason that I started by talking about the TEDx stage and just, you know, I, I really, really trust and believe in divine timing. And so the TEDx talk was finally released one week before the vagina monologues. And then I had the opportunity to sit with the natural comparison of these two experiences. And in this nebulous Ted, like the Wizard of Oz, like the Oz, judging my talk, judging my truth. I mean, I told my story on the TEDx stage and this organization was judging whether or not my story was going to be published. Now they have their own, I'm sure that they would never say that in those terms, but here I am a woman who fights for women's voices and women's story. And so this is how I'm framing this in the entire experience with TEDx. I found myself in old patterns around shame and worthiness around whether or not my story would be accepted or not accepted so much as given permission. It's like Ted had the permission with the setup of things to judge whether or not my story was worthy of releasing to the public. And fuck that. (laughs) Fuck that. You know, so it's like a prestigious stage with all of the, with all of this clout and you have to meet the requirements in order to be, you know, published as Ted. And, I'm recognizing that like, oh my gosh, I'm waiting for Ted, the organization, like again, (laughs) the representation of the man to approve of my story and my voice. And they'll show that approval when they release it. And I realized that somewhere around like, I don't know, four months after the talk not being released, I was like, fuck that. Look at this thing I'm doing again. And I was like, whether it's published or not, whatever. I have a copy of the talk, whatever, you know, I was like, I know I told my story. And then when I released that fully is when the TEDx actually was published. And then, um, taking this step to, to speak this story on the vagina monologue stage was way more freeing than the TEDx, because with TEDx, I was still playing by the rules. I was still conforming into this, you know, 3D, if you will, uh, construct that is TED. And then I was still asking for permission inherently to have my whole story. And fuck that. (laughs) Fuck that. We're just not doing that anymore. So, hmm, pausing to see if there's anything else that wants to be said here as I close. Thank you so much for listening. The reason that I share, the reason that I have this podcast is because I believe that in telling our stories and hearing our stories together as women, we become braver, we become more courageous, and we know that we're not alone. 
I was at a retreat, a yoga retreat a few weeks ago, and a friend of mine running the retreat said, platform is privilege. And in that moment of hearing her say this, and I was doing some soul searching on the retreat, of course, and in hearing her say platform is privilege and, and recognizing that I have this podcast and this platform is privilege. And nobody gave me the permission to, to start this podcast, right? Like nobody said, okay, Sarah, your voice is strong enough or good enough or your stories are good enough. Or now you have permission to tell them. It was like, just do it. Like my soul knew it was, it was sacred. It was divine. And in the moment when I heard my friend Laura say that at the retreat, I was like, fuck yes. I gritted for this privilege. <laughs> I hugged the wall in absolute fear for many years with debilitating social anxiety as I did not know why my body was in such fear of speaking my own truth. I did not know the power of liberating truth. I did not know the power that happens when we stop asking for permission and start claiming it as our own. So in this platform, it is my privilege to share and encourage you to own your truths. And if, if even that begins with, with believing yourself, with believing yourself, Ooh, sisters, tears in my eyes as I say this. The reason I made this e-course that I have at sarahpoet.com is because I know that the reason that we do not share our stories and the reason that we are silent and the reason that we don't believe even ourselves is because we have these traumas. And to overcome the trauma by using a strong voice, we can still be in fight or flight for quite some time as I myself have been discovering this week. And I also have been discovering this week one more layer that when we do love ourselves and be with ourselves in the truth of our stories and then eventually use our courageous voices, we will find ourselves in a place of acceptance and permission. And yes, sisters, we will also lose we will lose things in this process. And I wish I could say that that wasn't true, but you know, I'm a straight shooter and I'll give it to you. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you the truth. You will lose things on this path because the reason that you're silent is to protect an ugly truth. The reason that you're silent is because somebody else did not do their work. The reason that you stay silent is because the world is full of untruths that, that makes your truth-telling outrageous. And that is the way it has been, but it is not the way it always has to be. So women's voices deserve to be heard. Women's stories 
deserve to be believed. Women's bodies deserve to be believed and held as sacred. And this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. And this is why I'm here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for every single act of courage to stand in and embody and maybe even speak your truth. The e-course that I am referencing is available at sarahpoet.com. It's cheap. It's only 99 bucks, and it's about a six-week course that takes you from beginning to think about how to move from silence into sacred truth, and you can work with this with one truth at a time. If I can help you individually to stand with you to um, coach you into how to begin to speak your truth, um, including healing trauma and removing blocks and recovering soul fragments that have been uh, lost as these traumatic experiences have occurred. That is the work that I do. And it would be my absolute honor to stand with you in that space and to Call yourself and your truth back home to you. So much love. So much reverence. Deep, deep bow to all of the truths that you're carrying. And all my love. It's really important to me that we have space to share our stories and our truths and have them witnessed and believed and lifted up. And I believe in the transformation of that. If this podcast has sparked anything for you that you wish to share, or if you wish to join into existing conversations, head on over to the free and private Facebook group, Sacred Remembering, same name as the podcast. Let us know what arises for you. We'd love to have you. This is Sarah Poet of Embodied Breath, and thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'm curious, what was your biggest takeaway? Remember that you are not alone on the sacred path, and women are rising now together. You can visit my website, sarahpoet.com, for more tools and inspiration to support your sacred remembering path. Please be sure to check the show notes, subscribe to this podcast, share with a friend, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I love to hear from you. Stay connected, and here's to your path of sacred remembering.